Welcome back to today's podcast, Chatting with Channing. And I'm joined by Katie Nichol, where I get to quiz her about the release of her latest book, how she got into royal journalism, and some of the best memories she has from her Channing days, including skipping out. So find out more when you listen. Welcome to Chatting with Channing. This is the podcast for Channing School that lets you, the listener, find out more by hearing from people throughout the whole school community. Each episode, you'll hear real stories from staff, from pupils, from parents and the school's alumni to give you a true reflection of life on Highgate Hill. So come with us as we get into this episode right now. Well, today I'm very fortunate to speak to one of our alumni at Channing, Katie Nicholl. Welcome. Thank you. It is so nice to be back at Channing. I'm really going down a, a trip down memory lane. I just want to ask, actually, so when did you last go to Channing and what has changed as you wandered around today? So I joined Channing in 1988, which makes me terribly old. And I was class of 95 when I left. And um, as soon as I came in, actually, into the into the main entrance, it just sort of came flooding back to me. And I, I realised as I sort of climbed the steps of Hague House right to the top, that that's where I first realised as a you know young 11-year-old that actually I have quite bad vertigo because... If you've stood at the top of the staircase in Hague House, you know how tall it is and you sort of look down and it's 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 terribly daunting. And I think sort of I, f- I felt that way when I first came to the school and I came from um, a very small convent school in Hampstead okay, and well, coming to Channing, it, it was a huge change and coming to Channing to this sort of big school with all these big girls was pretty, pretty daunting. I sort of felt like I was on a precipice. So that sort of standing at the top of the Hague House felt like my journey into into Channing. But I got to know the stairs very well and I got less scared of heights as I as I went through the school, which was just as well. Well, I'm glad, glad to hear that cl- climbing the steps, you know, and, and whether it's metaphorically or physically. What led you to actually end up at Channing? Was it a choice from your parents? Was it something from yourself? Well, it wasn't too far from home where I lived with my, my, my family in East Finchley. And you know, I was very familiar with Highgate. We used to walk in Waterloo Park all the time as a family. And, you know, it was it was a really, really good school. I came to see it and and loved the school and, you know, loved the fact that it, even though it felt big to me at the time, actually Channing always has been quite a quite a small school, quite intimate, and, has, and it very much had a family feel to it. And I, I think I was very drawn to that. It wasn't the brown uniform, let's just put it that way. Oh, okay, yeah. So we won't mention any more about the uniform. And well, obviously you've mentioned sort of memories and things. What about, what was perhaps your favourite memory as you look back at Channing? I always remember Founders Day being a really special day. Um, You know, lots of celebrations. Um, And I think, you know, what what made Channing special were were the people, the teachers. We had wonderful, wonderful teachers. And the girls, I've, I mean... Many of my closest friends today are are Channing girls, and you know we just we, that wonderful, wonderful friendships and bonds were formed over the years. And you know I have a young daughter now; she is eleven, and I, you know, walking around the school today, it's it, it's um, it's very evocative, and you know, quite it, it makes it makes me think about the journey that she is about to embark on, and all the things that are going to happen to her. You know, I had my first kiss in Waterloo Park, and I had. <laughs> I love, you know, love it. I did. I all did. All the truths are coming out today. Oh yeah, they'll all come out. And then you know, I discovered the delights of hot chocolate because we, you know, this is something I had never had at the convent, and we had this amazing vending machine here where we could make our own hot chocolate. And um, you know, and I got to, I got to grow up here. I got to grow up and learn about myself and try new things. And 
I just, there was always a sense of adventure and excitement. I did my Duke of Edinburgh award here and we had oh, wonderful okay. adventures doing that and getting lost in the Glen Rossa Valley in Wales and, you know, real adventures. And I loved actually growing up in Highgate Village, you know, when we were old enough, I think in the sixth form, we were allowed to go out and we used to go out and have coffees and we'd meet our friends up at Highgate. And remember at that time, it wasn't a mixed school. So you only had oh, Highgate boys and Channing girls. And so you know, you became very much a part of that Highgate community. And I always remember being, even though I didn't like the colour much, very proud of wearing that Channing uniform and the Channing emblem and, you know, really feeling like a Channing girl. And they do say, once a Channing girl, always a Channing girl. And I think that's, I think that's very true. I mean, that just says a lot about the school, doesn't it? That's that sense of identity. And you mentioned as well that so many of your friends from those days are still close friends of yours now. What do you think is it about the school that actually creates that sense of comradeship or just that sense of closeness? Well, I think way before the Spice Girls, you know, Mrs. Raphael was on to girl power. It was as simple as that. It was that belief that as young women, and on the precipice of of womanhood, we could do anything. We could achieve anything we wanted. Um, we there there were no limits. There was no glass ceiling to contain us. You know, the world was our oyster, and it was there for the taking. And I do think that that sense of self belief um, and and limitless opportunities was something that was instilled in all of us. And that's what I say when once a Channing girl, always a Channing girl. You know, the world the word can't wasn't really part of my vocabulary probably made me quite a difficult person actually certainly terribly <laughs> stubborn but also determined you know I've earned an, a yeah. reputation in my industry as a journalist they used to say I was like the rottweiler like a or not a rottweiler I was like a dog with a bone I wouldn't yeah. let go of something you know that sort of tenacity mm-hmm. and I think yeah obviously that's something that was within me but it was certainly something that Channing nurtured that that belief that you can do whatever you set your mind to. And I love that idea. And actually, we're just holding on to that word girl power. Uh, how did that kind of sense leapfrog you into becoming um, a royal correspondent? What was the journey from, you know, when you left school to essentially, I mean, being a New York Times bestselling author now, Katie? It'd be lovely to hear a little bit more about that. But let's just stick with how did you leave Channing and then become a journalist? Well, actually, it was it was at Channing when I knew I wanted to become a journalist. I'd I remember being asked when I was started in year seven, you know, what do you want? It was an open question to the class. You know, what do you want to be when you're older? And yeah, I don't think anyone really knew, but it was the one thing I was absolutely sure about. I wanted to be a journalist and I'd sort of grown up watching Kate Ad on the front line, often, you know, filing amazing dispatches back from war zones with the BBC. And I just thought, my God, what an incredible, exciting, amazing job. And I ended up in the firing line in a completely different way, I suppose, because I, I didn't end up as a war correspondent. Um, I ended up going into celebrity journalism and then into royal journalism. And actually, my journey to become a royal editor was was not planned. It wasn't that I was a royalist. I wasn't particularly interested in the royal family. But during my days of covering celebrities, I ended up at a party and Prince Harry was at this party. It was at the Kensington Roof Gardens and he'd taken out a private room and I'd gone out for some fresh air and Harry was having a cigarette in the doorway and inside he was having this party. And I remember he was meant to be revising for his A-levels at Eton. And here he was surrounded by a bevy of blondes, magnums of Belvedere vodka, packets of Marlborough Reds, having the time of his life. And he invited me into the party. And of course, I wasn't going to say no. So I (laughs) sort of went in and had this little snapshot into the royal world of Prince Harry and it was great fun and 
I realized actually this is a bit more exciting than the world of celebrities. So I decided to focus less on the celebrities and more on the royals. And so I covered the early lives of of the young royals, William and Harry at the time, who of course were not married. Um, you know, William wasn't the future king at that point, wasn't one in line to the throne. Um, he was young and carefree and having fun. They would play polo and I'd be going to polo matches and watching them. They'd be going to nightclubs and often falling out of them and I'd be not too far behind them. And then of course, you know, William falling in love with Kate at St Andrews, which was a courtship that I, I charted in uh, my book, the making of a royal romance, which is all about William and Kate's romance and how they met and how that love affair developed. So it was kind of by accident, but actually it turned out to be the most amazing career and one that has seen me travel around the world. I've been to many parts of the Commonwealth and beyond with William, with Harry, with, with Prince Charles, now obviously King Charles and Camilla and the late Queen and the late Duke of Edinburgh. So it's um, it's taken me around the world and it's been quite a remarkable career, really. Just not one that I planned. Well, I mean, there's so much in there that I kind of even like not sure where to start with a question. But I think one thing would be interesting is to think about what are the characteristics that make a good royal correspondent? I mean, you talked about starting off um, in that sort of idea of celebrity journalism, but then moving into and you've written loads of books. Well, I obviously want to find out a little bit more about what prompted that. And is that an easier task writing a book than uh, no, finding coffee or something. I don't want to ever do another royal book again because the last <laughs> one nearly killed me. But no, really... it's hard. It's hard work. It's really hard work because you don't want to just churn out a book that you know anyone else can. I think royal reporting is a complete niche. It's totally separate to any other type of journalism. You're completely dependent on sources who often don't want to be named. Sources within the inner circle of the royal family's friendship group or whoever they may might be. Um, and you're very much dependent on those sorts of sources for information. And, you know, unlike celebrities, the royals don't have stylists and PRs and agents. You know, you take a, a, an A-list celebrity and, and there's going to be an entourage of, well, I don't know, anything between sort of 10 and 20 people around that star, depending on how A-list they are. And so there are leaks and there are people that chat. And that's why, you know, we've got so many celebrity gossip magazines on the magazine stands covering the rules is is much much harder and so um and i think it's far more challenging i mean they're incredibly private i mean if you think of the late queen she never sat down and gave an interview everything we really know about the queen is is based on hearsay she never sat down and told us what she really felt about brexit or anything else for that matter so there's always been a sense of mystique so i think i suppose the challenge in Raw reporting was getting people to talk, earning their trust, um, and then also not sort of shattering too much of the mystique, because of course, without that, the royal family isn't perhaps as as appealing as it yeah. as it might be without it. So yeah, it's very different to other forms of journalism. But at the end of the day, it comes down to to breaking great scoops and getting great stories, and that was that was my job. And what does go into breaking a royal scoop? I mean, you obviously talk about that kind of cultivating those friendships, being discreet, having a sense of an understanding of what's going on, but also knowing how far you can push the line. So what what actually goes into that? And have you got any that you can share? Well, I think sometimes or? it's just a case of being in the right place at the right time. I mean, I, I remember very clearly being at a polo match once. William and Harry and, and Charles were all playing in a charity polo match in summer in Gloucestershire and and Charles came off his horse and he was flat out concussed on the ground 
And I remember feeling, or I remember it being so extraordinary that neither William or Harry got off their horses. They sort of stood around their father while the ambulance and the paramedics came onto the field. Um, And I was with someone who was taking pictures at this time. And it was just a bizarre series of events. Within minutes, these sort of men in black suits were amongst us in the crowd and the media taking our camera film out of our cameras oh, really? because okay. we didn't have camera phones at that time. Yes, of course. We were I mean, on a film, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, taking film mm-hmm. out of cameras, making sure no one's got any any footage of this event. You know, and at the same time thinking, wow, I mean, if 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 this is it, then William's the next king. And all of these incredible sort of things were going through my head at the time. But I remember very clearly feeling this is, you know, this is something I will always remember. This is an an important moment. It's an important story. And of course, it was the front page the next day. So I think sometimes it was being in the right place at the right time. More often than not, it was it was getting a great source that was prepared to talk to you and 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 give you these, you know, the incredible stories. Um, You know, I remember being tipped off that that William and Kate Middleton were, were dating at St. Andrews. And that was a really hard story to stand up because, of course, there was a media agreement in place where we'd agreed once we'd taken those first pictures of William at St. Andrews, we'd leave him alone. So it was, there's, I think you were always treading a very fine line. It's sort of walking a walking a tightrope, really. And, uh, you know, as I say, it, it's it's got its challenges when it comes to royal reporting, but it's it's been a very rewarding career as well. Well, it sounds fascinating. I mean, who who is, when you talk about that tightrope, who is saying to you, is it you yourself or was it your editor or how did you, or was it other people kind of also following perhaps um, the royal, other royal correspondents? How did you think, okay, where do we push this or how do we say it? What's the right thing to do? Well, I was working for the Mail on Sunday. You know, it wasn't like the News of the World or the Sunday Mirror. You know, we were, yes, technically a tabloid, but, you know, a highbrow tabloid. And, um, you know, I remember there were times when I'd sort of be tipped off about Harry dating um, a, a girl and being asked by the palace. I remember on one specific occasion, just could you just sit on this for a while? Because it's really new. It's in its embryonic stages. And, you know, he doesn't want the cover blown. And I thought, OK, you know what? On this occasion, I'll do it. I'll earn some brownie points. Let's let's give him a chance to get that relationship off the ground. And you know, there there was there were times when you I think you just had to use your judgment about things. Mm-hmm. Um, but remember when I was covering the young royals, they were this was well before they were married, well before they were settled down, and they were just out having a lot of fun. You know, during their army careers, there was a lot of nightclubbing and and a lot of fun to be had along the way. So I think in many ways because I was young at the time as well, I sort of grew up with them, watching them and chronicling their lives. And and that's, you know, that's continued through their courtships and then engagements and royal weddings and royal babies. And, you know, I've covered all of those milestone events. And certainly the the royal wedding of 2011 for William and Kate was was a real highlight. I covered that for ABC in America. And that was was a wonderful, wonderful day um you know and then more recently i've covered some really important and and very sad occasions with the death of the duke of edinburgh and of course the late queen and you know i think when you're covering something like that for a corporation like the bbc you realize what a an honor and a privilege your job is and actually what an enormous responsibility to be capturing the mood of the nation um for those people who are tuning in and watching it um that's uh well, that was definitely the the most nerve wracking moment of my career for sure. I, well, I totally, as you say, because all eyes were focused, weren't they? Particularly with the death of the Duke of Edinburgh and the late Queen, everyone 
was actually taking part in that story and particularly sort of the all the things that had happened as well in the kind of context of COVID. I mean, just your mention of um, camera phones and at the time not having them when particularly that time of that polo match. I mean, how has the landscape of journalism changed for you, especially in royal reporting? Um, because obviously people can now record things themselves. But what what have you seen, Katie? And how has that sort of changed for you? Well, I mean, you know, since, since I've been working in the industry for the best part nearly of two decades, you know, we have now a world of 24-7 news. We never used to have that. So, you know, there is such an insatiable appetite um, for content. Um, I think that applies to to all genres in the news domain. As you say, everyone everyone has a camera on their phone. Everyone is on social media. You know, I used to work for a Sunday newspaper, so it was really hard to keep those scoops. You know, if I got a great scoop on, on a Monday, you know, I'd have everything, fingers, toes, legs crossed that it was going to hold until we went to print on a Saturday night. Um, you know, that that just doesn't happen anymore. You can't hold information like that. There's sort of a sense of just get, getting it out, you know, whether that's on a... Um, breaking a story on online or, or breaking it on on TV. But I think, you know, the landscape has has shifted enormously. And, you know, I wonder how many more years we'll actually have tangible, physical newspapers, because yeah. most of us don't go and buy a newspaper. We read our news online. And, and that is how people are interacting, isn't it, nowadays? And therefore, as you say, reporting. So does that mean, therefore, I mean, obviously you talked about, um, you know, writing books and just the uh, challenge of that. And I would love to talk to you as well about your latest book. But does that mean that for journalists that actually writing books is going to be the way that you're going to have to move towards? What what does it look like for you in the future, do you think? Well, it, it's interesting. I mean, when I started out in my career, I, you know, and I've had knockbacks along the way. Um, I always remember one of them being at the London College of Printing, which still does a very prestigious course in journalism. And I remember getting right down to the final round. And the guy saying to me, who's interviewing me, you know, we just feel that you don't know whether you actually want to be doing print or broadcasting. And I said, well, I want to do both. <laughs> yes, and he was like, this, you're not the right <clears throat> fit for us. We want solely print journalists. Right, okay. And I thought, okay, I think you're wrong. And, and and from the sort of start of my career, when I when I started out in print, it was always with a view to having a multifaceted career where I could do, well, at that point, it was just television. But today, it's podcasts, like with you. Yeah. It's writing books. It's writing for online magazines. Um, it's certainly not just writing print pieces. Um, it, it's it's just a much greater spectrum of journalism, and I you know I, I, and I enjoy that. I, I love writing long lead pieces for Vanity Fair that might take me two months to write, and and I love being able to do something that you know I'm on live TV and it's out and it's gone and it's done, and I love the immediacy of that. I, I love the range of it, but. Yeah, I mean, will I end up writing more books? Probably. Um, and for as long as there is print, I intend to write because you know, my love of writing started here at Channing and is is kind of what I feel it's it's really all I know how to do. I'm I can write. Okay, and I'm gonna come back to that conversation about loving writing. So let's just talk about your latest book. Um, so the New Royals, Queen Elizabeth's Legacy and the Future of the Crown, which obviously looking at Queen Elizabeth's remarkable reign and the challenges faced by the House of Windsor in recent years. Could you share some insights, Katie, about how you went into actually researching the book and what are some of the things that you kind of concluded as you think about the evolution of the monarchy in this sort of current era? Well, 
obviously I didn't have a crystal ball and I, I didn't know that the oh, Queen surprising. was going to die. The Queen was going to die the day before my, my book came out. So, you know, oh, I, right. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was quite remarkable timing really, but you know, I, we were all watching an increasingly frail monarch. We were all preparing, or certainly the palace were preparing, royal correspondents were preparing, obituary writers were preparing for the inevitable day when the Queen died and when there would be a transition and a coronation, the likes of which most of us haven't seen in our lifetime. And so I felt, having written previous books about the key principles, so William and Kate and Harry and Meghan, I actually wanted to do a slightly different book and the New Royals is different in that it's not a biography of one member of the royal family. It is a look at, as you say, the the reign of, of the late Queen Elizabeth II, but also what the future looks like for the royal family. And I didn't know how the book was going to end. I didn't I didn't know quite what the conclusion was going to be. And so I spoke to I spoke to many sources. I spoke to people who have helped with my previous books people who had worked for the royal family, um, people who still work for the royal family, but also constitutional historians and, and other experts to really try and sort of build up a picture of what the future would look like and whether there was a, a place for a monarchy in modern Britain. And I suppose my conclusion is, is that... Um, Inevitably, we're going to have the reign of, of King Charles III, even though it's it's not so relevant today because we know we, we have Charles on the throne and we're going to have him for however many years we're going to have him for. But before that, there was a big question mark as to whether Charles would come to the throne or whether it would leapfrog and the crown would go to William. So I sort of put all of that speculation to rest. And my, and my conclusion and overview is a positive one. I think my job has made me a royalist because I see how hard they work. I see what they do for us as a country. And I spoke to enough people to come to the conclusion that there is a future for the monarchy. It can be an optimistic future, but there needs to be some change. And I think we're seeing that change. And that that is the sort of, I mean, it feels like we are in this world, aren't we? Of just everything is changing so quickly. And it's very hard, as you say, to, to see what could it look like in the future? I mean, if you were going to be kind of obviously you know, your role is that separation, is it, from the monarchy? Um, but if you were talking to them, would you have any advice for them? Or is that just something that, you know, you don't think about? Well, I've never been on the other side where I've been where I've been advising them. So I don't know, maybe you never know, never say never. But I think, listen, I, my personal opinion is that the first, well, the first year of, of Charles's reign has been a very, a very successful one thus far. I think, He's been very sensible not to rock the boat too much, not to implement too many changes too quickly. I think people look to the monarchy for continuity and stability, and Charles recognises that. And he's also a man who who loves tradition. So I think he's I think he's doing well, and I think it's worked actually to the royal family's advantage that you know our political landscape is such a such a mess that actually people want to know that you know in the monarchy we have. We have something stable. We have something sensible. Of course, there are a few members of the family that you need to cast aside in that statement. Yes, yes, yes. But when you look at the key <laughs> the principles, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It, you know it's it's a pretty happy ship, and I think it's a case of at the moment steady cruising. But there are big issues that are going to need to be considered. You've got the future of the Commonwealth. You've got the landscape here of the United Kingdom. You you know there's still the question of Scotland wanting to become independent. So there are many many. 
I think, challenges facing the royal family. But I think it helps hugely that we've got the very popular William and Kate and their gorgeous three kids and that sort of dynasty to come. I think without the Waleses, I do wonder how much longevity there would be for the House of Windsor. Okay. Well, I'm going to hold that thought there with your advice. And thank you, Katie, for answering that question. And just uh, picking up when you talked about that you love to write and just thinking about you back again at Channing. I mean, you know, what was your favourite subject when you sort of sat there in that year seven and listening to that person talking and saying, I want to become a journalist? What was it that was feeding you and kind of telling you that this is this is the kind of career path that you were going to head down? Well, I always loved stories and and storytelling and I've always loved people um, and listening to people's stories. And I think, you know, to be a journalist you really need to be a good communicator. And, and I, I think that's that's a skill I've always had. And I suppose it was a case of, you know, using those skills within a career where I could where I could excel. But I, you know, I I I think to come back to the point I made about Kate Hady, you know, I, I found it really inspiring watching her and her dispatches from the front line. That just definitely lit the touch paper for me. I just saw it as exciting and fast moving and involving travel, which I knew I always wanted to do and, and writing and it, it, English always was my favorite subject. And yeah, I loved English. And actually we've just done a tour here of Channing and, and I found this little room where I used to have, I was in this, we had, we were streamed in English and there was a sort mm-hmm. of a top English set at A level. And we had this wonderful teacher called Mrs. Roots and she taught us English. And I remember sitting there, you know, with, I don't know, a small group of girls and cups of steaming hot chocolate reading Chaucer and you know just thinking this is bliss I love this this is wonderful I love that there's quite a juxtaposition is it hot chocolate and Chaucer I mean you know that just sort of feels like it sums up a bit of Channing tradition there um do you have a favorite tradition from your time when you were a pupil well I don't know if they still do it but um the skipping out at the end of term and the end of year was always a highlight, you know, where I think we would have awards and awards would be handed out and then everyone would start clapping and 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 singing. And it was just a, I remember sort of literally skipping out of the school and just feeling really happy. And I, I, I believe that still happens at Channing. I hope so, because it's a, it was a lovely, joyful thing to do. And just thinking, Katie, just as we kind of begin to finish, if you could go back in time, speaking to your teenage self, what would you have said to her? Or what would you say to her now? Um, oh gosh, that's a really hard question to answer. What would I say to the young Katie at Channing? I think always believe in yourself mm-hmm. and just know that you can do it. I think so many of us are riddled with a lack of confidence and self-doubt. So go for it and and follow your passions, follow yeah. your dreams and do what makes you happy. Brilliant. Well, it's so good to hear that you have taken that advice. And Katie, thank you so much for spending time with us this afternoon and just sharing and talking and just the enthusiasm for what you do has come across so brilliantly. Thank you. It's been lovely to speak with you. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one.